All right, good morning. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We are, of course, in the part of the book of Hebrews that is uh, giving the argument for the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His person was talked about in the earlier chapters, and now uh, basically chapters 5 through 10 deal with the superiority of his priesthood. Um, after laying out just kind of the basics, what a priest did in a general sense, and the fact that Christ met those qualifications, and then kind of pausing to give another warning. And uh, in that, it also expressed the significance of Christ's priesthood as well. The writer of the book of Hebrews moves on now to talking about the source of Christ's priesthood. And we started looking at this chapter this pa- in chapter 7. We started looking at this passage last week, of course. And uh, obviously, the, if there's one statement, okay, that would describe the whole chapter, it is Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because, what do you think that would be? Because his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And that, that, that would summarize everything that's said in chapter 7. But uh, so, so in other words, think of it this way. Uh, because, let's just say, pick whatever high priest. Uh, uh, Joshua, all right, who in, in Haggai's day, he was the high priest, all right? He was the high priest and qualified to be that at least partly because what? He was the proper descendant after the order of Aaron, all right? And so using that same logic, if you want to say, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ, he's qualified to be a priest, a high priest, because he's after the order of Melchizedek. And then the whole point of the chapter is demonstrating that that order is superior to the order, the Levitical order, or the order after Aaron because of certain things. One, because of who Melchizedek was, just his person and his greatness, okay? And the first three verses kind of uh, present that. And let me just say that I think the argument still holds true no matter what your uh, uh, conclusion is as to exactly who Melchizedek was, okay? Whether, Whether or not you think that he really was just an an Old Testament appearance of Christ, so he's really Christ, or if he was a human being that uh, the writer of Hebrews is just using certain things about him to apply to Christ and and so on. Either way, the argument is still true, if for no other reason, because Melchizedek was considered. How, How the first description we ever see of him in the Bible was what? He was the priest of the Most High God. So before Anybody in the family of, or the tribe of Levi, Aaron's or his descendants, before any of them were ever called a priest of God, Melchizedek was called a priest of God. So he predates them all. He was a priest before them. And then he said, his priesthood is said to be a continual priesthood. So it's ongoing. And in that light, you could say he never stopped being a priest, which again gives the argument that because of what chapter 7 states, 
you know, Christ is a continual priest because he lives forever. It, to me, again, that's just another argument that Melchizedek really is Christ, okay? But bottom line is he was a priest before Aaron. So his, his priesthood was established first, and as we'll see in chapter 7, it was never never said to be replaced. It was never said to be outdated. It was never said, it's just mentioned, and then it's like nothing else is said about it for thousands of years, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then in David's day, uh, remember Melchizedek was on the scene in Abraham's day, so that's roughly 1800 BC, uh, so that's a long time ago. David King David, all right, in Psalm 110, you know, he writes that psalm under inspiration of God, and Melchizedek is referenced in that psalm, basically stating that God makes a promise to the Messiah that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And that's around, roughly, again, around 1000 B.C., and then, again, nothing else ever said, mentioned about Melchizedek, until the first century, probably in the 60s, first century A.D., where the writer of Hebrews appeals to that very name, man, subject, and demonstrating how Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because of its relationship to Melchizedek, all right? And that's, that's we, we see this, all right? Then chapter 7, 4 through 10, we hurried through those verses, uh, but because uh, time was approaching fast last week, we heard through those verses, but basically the, the argument of those verses is that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because Melchizedek, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, all right? And because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, vicariously, you could say, Levi and Aaron did as well because they were in the loins. They hadn't been born yet. They were still in Abraham when Abraham gave those tithes. So the writer appeals to that and he makes a couple arguments. One is that because he gave tithes, that's, that's demonstrating his, you know, his submissive attitude toward him. And that Melchizedek blessed, he pronounced a blessing on Abraham. And then verse 7 says, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So therefore saying that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, right? And I don't know any of the you know, Jews that would have argued that Levi was greater than Abraham, or Aaron, although he was the high priest, was greater than Abraham. Again, in his person, they, they would consider Abraham greater, but the writer of Hebrews appeals to the fact that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, all right? Again, just going on through this point, all right, here. And, and then in verse 11, we're going to do this this morning. Let's pick up reading verse 11 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll talk about how this fits into the argument here of chapter 7 as well. So we'll, we'll do this. We'll let Pastor Brinker start. We'll just go around the room reading. And then uh, after you're done reading, we'll have a word of prayer and jump right back into this, all right? All right, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? 
For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth arises another priest, who is made not after the law of a formal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw the end to God. And insomuch as not without a hope, he was made priest. For those priests were, were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Twice so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth need not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word, the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and help us this morning as we continue looking at chapter 7. Uh, obviously to see uh, what, what this means and, and most of all though Lord again just to have a better appreciation and love for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, being our great high priest and Lord we're thankful for him and obviously we have to acknowledge without him uh, we are hopeless and helpless and uh, we, we uh, thank you for him and we ask these things in Jesus name amen. All right, as the chapter continues, and again, the general theme that Christ's priesthood is better because it's after the order of Melchizedek, and it's interesting how many times you see that, that phrase come up here, all right? Uh, just, again, driving home the point. Um, we move on, basically in verses 11 through 22, we see, I've just worded it this way, again, not, not that my wording of the outline is infallible or anything, but Jesus' priesthood, which is after, and notice the little slight difference of wording in the verses here, after the similitude of Melchizedek is perfect, and it brings a perfect salvation, all right? And there's several main ideas under this. The first uh, we look at in verses 11 through 17, but Christ's priesthood has done what the law and its priesthood could not do, all right? Um, verse 11, uh, it's if, in fact, it, it begins with this question and driving home the point, all right? If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, 
And you see a little parentheses here. But what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Introduces the question, well, if, if the Levitical priesthood was so good and it really was able to do what everything was supposed to do, why isn't it, you know, still, still going on and so on? All right, well, it was, and we'll see, it was replaced, okay, but uh, it couldn't do certain things. One, the law, if you think of it this way, the law was an endless cycle. Just they had to continually keep repeating everything because it couldn't fulfill anything. It couldn't do anything. Now, we know from the New Testament that basically everything that God instituted in the law was somehow or another was a picture of what Christ would do and fulfill. None of those individual things or even all of them collectively fully picture Christ, but they were all teaching tools, all right? And basically, the purpose of the law was to demonstrate the inadequacy of man and our inability to have a relationship with God. Uh, we needed help. And uh, the things that God instructed through Aaron's priesthood and the offerings, the sacrifices, and the whole system was there just to be pictures of what Christ would do. And uh, Christ's priesthood, though, again, has done what the law could not do. Again, the law was an endless cycle. It, there was no perfection. The word perfection here is not that in the sense of like sinless in that sense. It's the idea of able to complete, to fulfill. There was no fulfilling in the law. It, it was never done. That's the idea. It, would just, it was always had to be repeated and repeated and repeated. And then, of course, when Christ came and did what he did, that put an end to it because it brought satisfaction to God on behalf of man's sins and could bring satisfaction to men, uh, you know, regarding their sins. The blood of animals. Now, now, this is addressed more in Hebrews 10 and so on, 9 and 10 particularly. But the blood of animals could never take away sins. In fact, verse 4 of chapter 10 says, verse 4 of chapter 10 makes that statement. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. All right? Again, they were just, they were just pictures and so on here. All right? Uh, but, but it was endless. Again, that's the whole point. There was no end to it, no fulfillment to it. It was just something that was continually having to be done and repeated. It was just like running around in circles. All right? Uh, there was no, no fulfillment to it. The Levitical system was only pictorial and not perfect, all right? Again, chapter 10. You'll see ideas here in chapter 7, by the way, that they're, they're mentioned uh, a little bit, but they're going to be talked about more fully in chapters 8, 9, and 10, all right? But uh, the, so the Levitical system was only a picture, wasn't perfect, all right? Thus, the, that priesthood has been changed. Notice verse 12 an interesting statement. I find this interesting to people that are like today trying to still follow the law and, uh, you know, thinking that if they can just do all the things that the, the law prescribed that they're going to be okay. And that's their, but the law's been set aside because it was of no effect for salvation. Again, the main effect of the law was to show inadequacy, to show that we could not, not that we could, 
but that we couldn't. And there's nobody that's ever kept the law except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so no one, and that's what, you know, Romans, Romans argues salvation from a whole different perspective than what Hebrews does. Hebrews is arguing it from really the, the idea of the, based on the Old Testament, how Christ fulfilled the priesthood, okay, and the things that were involved from the Levitical standpoint of that. Romans is, is uh, talking about salvation more from a legal standpoint and how God as a judge uh, can forgive sin because Christ has satisfied the penalty for sin and paid for it and so on. So different arguments, but they overlap a lot, of course. Um, but says in verse 12, all right, for the priesthood being changed, there's made a, uh, of necessity a change of the law also. With Christ and the fact that he, and the reason that it can be changed is because he fulfilled it. There's no more purpose for it. Its, it's, it's purpose is obsolete now. It's, it's fulfilled. It's done. And the word change here, it's an interesting word. It's a word that means to take either from one thing to another location or just to exchange one thing for another, which is kind of the idea here. The words used in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 5, I think it is, talking of Enoch, where it says, by faith, Enoch was translated. There it's talking about Enoch was taken from earth to heaven, we would say, all right, just in a generic sense there. Uh, but he was translated from one place to the other, all right? But same words used here, talking about the law being changed. It was, it was traded, so to speak. It was transferred for something else because Christ fulfilled it, all right? So the priesthood being changed, there's made of necessity a change of the law also. The law is, is uh, there's no reason to be trying to observe the law because it's obsolete, is the idea. Christ has fulfilled it, all right? Um, so thus, that priesthood has been changed, is transferred for another, and that's the priesthood of Christ. This, law, this means the law has been changed as well, verse 12, all right? And then the priesthood has been, it's interesting too, that now he brings up, notice this, uh, in verse 13, "...for he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar." For it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. All right? Um, so it's like, okay, the, the tribe of Levi and their priesthood set aside. Now the tribe of Judah's in the picture because the one who is the priest now is of the tribe of Judah. All right? Jesus, of course, his, his human descent came through the tribe of Judah, which being a descendant of David, he's, a, he's royalty, all right? And so it's interesting that, again, now the picture, you, you think about it, Melchizedek was not only a priest, he was what? A king, all right? That's, that's the two ideas as, that was associated with Melchizedek. He was the priest of the Most High God, but he was also the king of Salem, which is peace, and king of righteousness, all right? So righteousness and peace. Again, all these things, to me, they just, they just picture and point to Christ, all right? But I uh, lost my place here. So the priesthood has been transferred to the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. Melchizedek was a king priest. Uh, look up... Um, Later, I don't think we read it last week, but, and I don't want to take time to do it now, but if you want to mark some verses down, I don't have them on the screen. But uh, Isaiah 32, 
Verse 1 and verse 17 mentions in a messianic light about king and priest, all right? Um, but we're in this, this portion here. I forgot to advance the slide. But then secondly, or B in my outline, the commandment of the law is replaced with the oath of a better hope. In verses 18 through 22, the, it moves on, um, and I didn't really finish all those, but it's just reiterating that same fact there about Melchizedek and um, Jesus being a priest after his order, right? In then um, verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment. Notice that. The commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. By that better hope, we're able to draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. And then verse 21's uh, parentheses again, but it's referring back to Psalm 110, for those priests were made without an oath. But this, with an oath, uh, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. All right. Again, there's a lot in these verses, but let me just try to uh, give these as quick as possible. But the law was imperfect and did not, could not produce life, but the bringing in of a better hope brings access to God. Now, that better hope is. Jesus. He was talked about previously that way in chapter 6. Remember at the end of chapter 6, that warning passage, as it was concluding, I think it's verse 18 there, says that we need to flee to that refuge. Uh, and, and it talks about his better hope, the bringing in of the better hope there. All right. Um, the better hope brings access to God. Christ's priesthood is established by an oath, all right? And it's making a, a comparison between a commandment. Think about this. Aaron's priesthood was established how? Did God make some kind of covenant with Aaron or a promise or something of that sort? No, he just commanded that Aaron was to be the priest. And he commanded that, you know, all that was done and those were set aside to be the priests. The tribe of Levi didn't have any inheritance in land. Their inheritance was the Lord. The, the Old Testament reiterates over and over again and so on. But the point is, he's saying because the law was ineffective and because all those priests kept dying, there was no continuity to one priest, okay? They were all continually being replaced. And that's brought out more again here later in the chapter. But he said that Christ was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and it's already been established earlier in the chapter that Melchizedek's priesthood is continual. It's ongoing. It's eternal, you could say, I guess. All right? But he's saying that the, the commandment to make Aaron a priest was disannulled there in verse 18 because of weakness and unprofitableness, because the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, and the idea is it made things perfect. It fulfilled, all right? In other words, what Christ did fulfilled everything that was needed. And then it, then it reiterates again, it just drives home the point that Christ's priesthood, which is after the order of Melchizedek, was established by God with an oath, all right? Now, 
if you take the position that Melchizedek is really Christ, okay, just a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ, or not, but if you take that, then obviously that means Christ has always been. There's never been an, inter, you know, an interruption. It wasn't that he became a priest you know, during that first century, during his earthly ministry, but he's always been. But even before the law, and then the oath that David refers to in Psalm 110 was after the giving of the law, right? Where he said, the Lord has sworn thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a promise to the Messiah, but it's an oath. And, the, and that's how uh, the writer Hebrews refers to it, that God made an oath to him, a promise to him that he would be a priest forever. All right, so again, it's establishing, it's making the comparison. Aaron was just commanded to be a priest. He was just to obey, to do those things. He didn't really have any choice in it, all right? But God made a promise. There was a special relationship there that God made a promise to Messiah that he would be a priest forever. There was no disannulling his priesthood because his priesthood was able to do what it was supposed to do and bring access to God. That's, the, that's really the bottom line, the whole point of the purpose of that priesthood was access to God. The people in the Old Testament did not have access to God personally. They had a vicarious access, if you want to say, on the Day of Atonement as the priest would access the presence of God at the mercy seat, but only him, and he, I mean, he was the only one, and only once a year, and, and you know, after all the, everything had to be done exactly the way it was supposed to, and, and all of this, but yet it had to continually be repeated every year, every year, every year, every year. There was no completion to it, but Christ is able to provide access to God because he fulfilled all right, he completed, he perfected that. All right, so we're doing pretty good here this morning time-wise. So Christ's priesthood is established by an oath, Psalm 110, verse 4. All right, we've referred to that. Melchizedek was a priest before the law, and the oath establishing Christ's priesthood after Melchizedek's order was made after the law. Christ has been made, in fact, as that part ends here in verse 22, really, Notice that statement, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, it's interesting, this is the, the introduction of the idea of a better, or it doesn't use the word new here, but a better testament. A better, the word testament means is covenant, all right? So a better covenant, and you could think of it as a new covenant, and uh, Christ was made the surety of that. The word surety is the idea of uh, the guarantee. He is the guarantee of a better covenant. Maybe something similar like the purpose of uh, collateral or the purpose of a cosigner or something when, you, when somebody gets a loan is to help ensure or guarantee that that loan's going to be honored, properly taken care of, all right? But Christ is the surety or the guarantee of this new covenant here uh, that God is making with man. Now, the new covenant, it's referred to in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right, is uh, it pertains to the nation of Israel, but it also pertains to all men, all right? There's, there, you could say there's uh, 
a prophet, an eschatological or prophetic connection with the nation of Israel. That will happen during the millennial reign. But there is a, a, uh, uh, a soteriological or a, a relationship, uh, an idea in salvation that's connected with all people who are saved, who are born again. That's the personal aspect of it, the personal level. All right, and again, that's through Christ. Do you remember uh, the night before Christ was uh, crucified the next day, all right? He, he mentioned about the covenant with, because of his blood and so on, all right, which we uh, memorialize, if you want to say, with the Lord's Supper and so on. But this, again, this, this, this oath was established, uh, establishing Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek made, and the oath was after the law. Jesus has been made a surety or a guarantee of a better testament, a better covenant. All right, and then verses twenty-three through uh, twenty-eight, rounding out the uh, uh, the chapter here. <clears throat> Christ, Jesus's priesthood is perfect and eternal because He is the perfect and eternal priest. <clears throat> Excuse me, in verses 23 through 25, they stress the fact that Jesus' priesthood is permanent. That, that idea has been introduced, but now it's focused on more here. Jesus' priesthood is permanent, verses 23 through 25. Notice, and they, those Old Testament priests, truly were many priests because they were not suffered or allowed to continue by reason of death. In other words, once they died... Their priesthood was obsolete. They could not carry it on, right? So it was had to be passed on to the next one. That's the idea. They, they could not continue because of death, all right? And they all died, all right? But this man, Jesus, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable Priesthood. Jesus never lost his priesthood. This is an interesting thing. Somebody say, well, Jesus died, didn't he? Well, he did, but of course he didn't stay dead. But the point is as well, and what Hebrews in the following several chapters, there's a focus here that, and this is, this is, this is one of those things that's not easy to just get your head wrapped around, okay? But Jesus, he was obviously... The sacrifice, and much of the New Testament focuses on that. He was the sacrifice for sins, okay? And everybody's heard that, and that's, that's kind of a common understanding of Jesus' death, involved in His death. But what Hebrews focuses on is at the same time that He was the sacrifice, He was also the priest administering the sacrifice, offering up the sacrifice, and only he could do that. No, no human, mere human priest could do that. Jesus is human, all right, because he became man, but he's God also, and he's always been God. And in chapter 9, we'll see some more things about that, that he, that the eternal Christ was offering up to God while the human Christ was dying on the cross. I mean, that's, that's deep stuff, okay? I'll have to... And, and, but that's how it's presented in Hebrews, all right? So, <clears throat> back to 23. They truly were many priests because they could not, 
they weren't, they weren't suffered to continue. They, couldn't, they weren't allowed to continue by reason of death. Their priesthood stopped when they died because they, they were dead. They couldn't carry it on anymore. Uh, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, or because of this, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is a wonderful verse here, obviously. <clears throat> Excuse me. Aaron's priesthood involved numerous priests because they each died and had to be replaced. There was no permanence to their priesthood. Because Jesus has an endless life, he has an unchangeable priesthood. His is permanent. Two aspects about that. One is, there's a permanent office, all right? The position is permanent for him because of who he is. And he has an unchangeable priesthood. It's, it's in place. It's permanent. He's never going to lose it. It's never going to get passed on to anybody else. But then the second aspect of that is what it accomplished, okay? And in verse 25, it's looking at it from the aspect of an intercession before God. One of the most important aspects of a priest is that he intercedes to God on behalf of man. One difference, think of it this way, a, a prophet was one that spoke to man on behalf of God. A priest, it's, it's the opposite direction. A priest goes to God on behalf of man. All right, And that's the aspect of what this is looking at here. So Jesus' priesthood is unchangeable. It's, it's permanent in its, its office or position, if you want to say. And it's permanent in what it accomplished, right? the effects of it. In fact, it's looked at in verse 25 as something not just that's done, but it's something that continues on. That's the, the, the way that verse 25 is looking at it. It's something that obviously he accomplished it in the past, we could say, but it's something that is continuing on. Why? Because it's, it's, it's not only never going to be replaced, there's no need to replace it because it is always working. It's always effective. It's ongoing, all right? And verse 25 says that uh, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Right now we're going to focus on that last statement, then we'll get back to the first part of the verse in the next point here. All right, But he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is continually living. He, he always lives. And the, the way this verse is looking at it is the purpose in his continual life is that he is there as an intercessor, all right? He is, he is, I mean, and, and I've heard this verse talked about a lot of times, okay? And, and I don't believe the emphasis of this verse is that Jesus is continually sitting there pleading with the Father on behalf of, of uh, saved people, all right? And a lot of people tie that in, you know, with like uh, Revelation 12 where it talks about Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing them all the time. All right, and that Jesus has to be continually begging the Father. No, the point of this verse is he's there, and the fact that he is there is an intercession. He, his presence, his life, his presence is making an intercession. 
And it's an ongoing intercession. It's not something he has to continually like keep doing. It's just, it's a one and done thing. And the fact that he's there now continues to make it effective. All right. Um, but so endless life, unchanged priesthood, permanent office, ongoing intercession. Now notice uh, again, verses 25, and we'll tie this in through verse 28, Jesus' priesthood is perfect, all right? Um, he's able and, and perfect in the sense of, again, it's, it's complete. It's fulfilling. Remember the, the, the uh, earlier we saw that the, the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, it was disannulled because it was inept, it couldn't do it, it, its weakness and unprofitableness, all right? It couldn't do, uh, really, the full work of a priest. It could never fully satisfy. And it was just an endless cycle of repeating the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. Maybe you can kind of think of it as, that reminds me, one of the things, anyway, is kind of like in the Roman Catholic system, you know, the, the repetition of rosaries and so on like this. Or I mean, you know, it, it just, it's it's... There's really no end to it. Uh, but with Jesus' priesthood, the point is in verse 25 again, all right, not just that he's ever living to make intercession, but he's, he's able, what he did, it provides salvation, and he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. So he is able to save to the uttermost, to save. This is the normal word that's related to salvation in the New Testament, word means to deliver, to rescue, can mean to preserve, um, but he saves them, he rescues them, delivers them, all right, to the uttermost, all right, means completely, wholly, entirely. It could also have a reference to time, and if that's the case, it means forever, all right, in other words, for all time that idea. It could mean both, and in reality, both are true, all right, scripturally, in this, in this context, all right, but he's able, now, but think of that statement, all right, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, all right, so not only is he able to save to the uttermost, but he's able to save those approaching God through him, and only that, all right, Somebody turn back to chapter 4 real quick and read verses uh, 14 through 16, if you would. We've read them before, but 14 through 16, all right? Change then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. All right, now the wording in those verses is not exactly the same here, but it's the same idea, all right? In that there it's emphasizing that Christ is this high priest. He relates to us, all right? He's been tested, tempted, proven to be perfect in his person, in his character, and so on. And because of that, we can approach the throne of grace. We can, we can come boldly before God, and, and the idea of that is only in Him. 
You can't on your own. You have no right and no access to God on your own. But in Christ, through that great high priest, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, and I, I mentioned this when we were in that context, that in that context, that's talking about salvation. Now, I think there's application there for throughout our Christian life, you know, in prayer and various things. But the direct context of that is it's talking about salvation in Christ. And the same thing is talked about here in verse 25 of chapter 7. He's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God, those that approach God, right? Come to God, but the words through him in verse 25 are very key. All right, that's the only way you can approach God and have access is if you approach God through him, through Christ, by means of Christ, through him. That's the only way, all right? Um, uh, so people must... Now, two things about that, all right? And, and I got ahead of myself a little bit on one of those. But when you think about that statement, approaching God through him, all right, Number one, people must approach God if they're going to be saved. People can know about salvation, hear the gospel, hear God's invitation for salvation, but until they approach God in faith, in Christ, they'll never have that salvation. There is a human response. I mean, God is the author of salvation. He's the finisher of salvation, yes, but people do have a... There is a human, an element of human responsibility in salvation. We have to respond to God's offer, if you want to say. We have to respond to God, right? So, and, and again, the wording of this verse brings all of these things out in reality, all right? So, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, right? But they have to come. They have to approach God, but... They, they can only approach God and have access if they approach through Him, in Him, by Him, all right? Only those approaching God through, by means of Jesus, this, in, in the context, the idea is through this particular high priest. You can't approach God through Aaron's priesthood. You can't. It has to be through the priesthood of Christ. But only those Approaching God through him will be saved to the uttermost, and you will be saved to the uttermost. There's no, and even in that, when you think of it, there's no necessary to repeat it. There, there's no necessity to repeat salvation. Once salvation is, is obtained, if I can say it that way, through Christ, there's, it's done. And that is a, a consistent subject throughout the book of Hebrews, that salvation... Christ's effort his, in providing salvation, his work in providing salvation, and man's uh, point in receiving salvation, it is a one and done thing. There is, there's no need to repeat it because it is effective. It's effectual. It accomplishes everything that it's intended to accomplish. It's not like the law, again, the comparison in this chapter, one of the comparisons is that, that stuff in the law, it had to, there was no end to it because it couldn't ever finish. There was no finishing point. It was just, you go around here, then you start again. You go around here, and you start again. You go around here, and you start again. There was no, there was no end to it. But what Christ did, he fulfilled it. He ended it. He brings an end. 
And in him, there is an uttermost salvation. I mean, this is, this is wonderful for us. Think about it, all right? So you see that emphasis here, verse 25, and then verse 26, um, he is demonstrated to be a fitting high priest. Notice the wording of verse 26, for such an high priest, the, the, one, the kind that can save us to the uttermost is, is, is I think, the, the reference back to such an high priest, became us. Now, that might sound funny in our English of today, but the idea is the word became is it, he is becoming. It, he was suitable, fitting, all right? The right kind is, is, I guess, a way you could think of it, all right? For he became us who is, now he, the, the descriptions here are about him, not about us, all right? Uh, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, all right? Holy, the word holy, there's these four descriptions here. Let me just go over these real quick. Holy is not the normal word rendered holy in the, in, in the New Testament. This is a word that means devout, pious, or pleasing to God, all right? Harmless, this means that he is innocent, guileless, no deceit in him, undefiled, you can think of it in the sense he's without blemish, all right? He's pleasing to God. He's without blemish, separate from sinners. He's set apart from all of us sinners. And the emphasis in that statement is the sinners, plural, in the sense like the whole group, the whole lot of us, all right? He is separate from us. He's set apart from us because he wasn't, he's not associated with sinners in the sense that he is a sinner. He's without sin is, is, I think, the emphasis, all right? And then he's made higher than the heavens. He's, he's at the right hand of God. He's exalted above the heavens himself, all right? Uh, I mean, we could look at a lot of other scriptures that drive home these points, that last statement, all right, in Philippians two, all right, the, the passage describing his humbling himself, becoming a man, uh, becoming a servant and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then, then the next verse, verse 9 says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. All right? Um, I mean, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, numbers of passages describe the sinlessness of Christ. All right? Second Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that's describing him, he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he, uh, he knew no sin. He didn't have a, an experiential knowledge of sin. All right, 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin. He did not commit any sins. In 1 John 3.5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. There, there's no sin in his person. There's no sin nature in his person. He is spotless, holy, perfect, all right? Um, and again, because of all this, he is the fitting high priest. Um, verse 27-28, I need to hurry and close, but he only had to offer one 
and it was a perfect, but he only had to offer one sacrifice. All those other priests had to bring, I mean, sacrifices galore, right? For this, that, and the other, and everything had to be in a specific, you know, little tweak here and little tweak there, and everything had, you know, Christ offered one sacrifice, and it was so sufficient that it covered everything, covered all the bases. I think it's interesting, the book of Leviticus, I mean, pretty much the whole book is about the Levitical system, right? First five chapters lay out the details of the five major types of sacrifice that had to be brought. And every one of them has something different, different type of animal, the way it was presented, I mean, just different things. But they were all for this or that, and, and none of them could cover everything, so to speak. And, you know, but Christ's sacrifice is so sufficient, not only that it saves sinners who approach God through Him to the uttermost, but it covers everything and anything and any, I mean, just everything. I don't know what other word to use than that. covers everything, all right? He didn't need to regularly offer many sacrifices because what he offered to God was the perfect sacrifice, and that's, that's expanded upon greatly in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, his, sacrifice, his priesthood is superior because of the sacrifice, and that's him, and that's talked about in, church, in chapter 10. His priesthood consecration, the last statement there in chapter uh, 7 is that his consecration is forevermore. The priests were set aside and, and consecrated for their office. Christ has been consecrated for his office, but his, his consecration is an eternal consecration. It, it's forever. All right? And again, this chapter is emphasizing the fact that his priesthood is better because of who he is and the basis of him being a priest. All right? Now, chapter 8 is going to go on talking about the new covenant. All right, we'll see the tabernacle in chapter 9, the true tabernacle that Christ ministered in, and then chapter 10, the sacrifice. Those are the main areas of argument that are hit on in Hebrews concerning the priesthood of Christ. So let's go ahead and uh, pray and be done here. Thank you, Lord, for just the wonderful, the wonderful truths that we see here in chapter 7. And I mean, the things about our salvation and the fact that we can know because of who Christ is and what He's done that our salvation is to the uttermost. If we've approached you, the, you know, following your word in faith, approaching you through Christ and on the basis of Christ, we have an uttermost salvation. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, uh, Lord, obviously to live that out, live for you, uh, and so on, but to be thankful to you for what we have in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.